Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Firstly, on the line, we do have Tom Boyd, the 2016 Premiership player and former number one pick. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on The Trade Feed. Fantastic to be here with you both. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, three years out of the game, just give the listeners an idea of what you've been up to. Uh, well, you know, there was this uh, whole world pandemic thing that, <laughs> that really sort of put everything into a bit of perspective. But lucky enough to, uh, to actually publish my first book, Nowhere to Hide, uh, on August 2 this year. And I've really transitioned into working, hopefully, in a really positive space around mental health and, and overall experience of, of workers uh, in the workplace. And I'm also lucky enough to have become a father almost six months ago now. So um, life is uh, chock-a-block. Nice and busy. And we will touch on your book, Nowhere to Hide, in a little bit. But I'd like to begin with the situation transpiring around Jason Horn francis the number one pick who has requested a trade back to South Australia and Port Adelaide. What have you made of it all? Can you empathise with what he's going through? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I haven't followed his career intimately. I, I mentioned, uh, particularly when he was under quite a bit of scrutiny, that I probably listened to about 15 minutes of him playing. I think that was the game that he got suspended. So, <laughs> in terms of his actual playing career, I don't have a lot of insight. But look, I think one of the things that people really struggle to reconcile with as the public is the fact that players do have the, the right to make the decisions that they deem as best to, to their overall career. And look, football's a short game. The average career spans three and a half years. And you do need to capitalise both financially and in a sense of trying to accomplish as much as you can in that short period. So um, I think that as long as he's got sound advice around him and he's got um, people in his corner that are telling him the, the harsh truths about the fact that being traded as a number one pick, such as I was, does come with certain burdens and challenges, as well as, you know, ultimately some successes in, in my case and also some opportunities. I think you'll be just fine. Tom, you've lived this experience, obviously slightly different given the magnitude of the deal when you moved clubs from Greater Western Sydney to the Western Bulldogs back in 2014. We're eight years on. The media cycle is almost a little bit more vicious, especially in the social media game would you recommend doing it if you're Jason Horn Francis right now given everything that you endured if you're Jason Horn Francis would you recommend doing it uh I mean look I I don't have any recommendations either way uh Josh I think for for me it really just comes down to making again the best decisions that you possibly can and one of the things that I think surprised me in a sense is that you know you do have this certain level of expectation just being a number one pick that's you know comes with the territory but when you do make a deal that, you know, let's say upsets a few people, in particular the football loyalists of the world who believe that players should sort of hold this genuine loyalty and stay as one club players, which obviously sort of flies in the face of the fact that clubs are also willing to cut you at a moment's notice. But um, I think from that perspective, it's, 
it's important to remember that you have to be making the decisions for the right reasons. And look, I don't shy away from the fact that it was an enormous financial opportunity. I had a two-year deal on the table essentially with the Giants that was certainly, you know, nothing to snark at, but didn't compare. But I think also, you know, part of my uh, sort of uh, choice and, and the decision that I made was based around the fact that there was a whole heap of competition at the Giants at the time. And we obviously had Jeremy Cameron and John Patton playing footy there. I didn't feel like the team was perhaps quite as uh, open for me as, a, as it might be otherwise, and that I sort of had a, a, a mission to push uphill to get in the side every single week, which I'm not trying to shy away from. But that, I think, coupled with the fact that moving back to Victoria on a really big financial deal and also being able to be the marquee player of a football club really appealed to me at the time. But it certainly does come with added responsibility and added challenges um, along with it. Tom, we'll move on in a second, but just one final one on this situation because it's very fascinating. It's going to be a topic discussed at length between now and next Wednesday night at 7.30pm. You've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to drill down a little bit closer. The flip side of this is Jason didn't choose to go to North Melbourne. The nature of the draft system is it dictates where you go. I feel like the public is very critical of players that move initially. We're seeing it right now with Ollie Henry and Tanner Bruin. They've come to the end of their first two years at their clubs, their first round pick, slightly different given where they were taken in the draft. But should the should the public and, and the supporters be less critical of players that want to move given they didn't choose where they landed via the draft? I'll ask the question of you, Josh. If you are not 18 years old and someone offered you $7 bucks to move from a club that had won three games in my first season or something like that, what would you do? Mm. You know, like, I think this is the great misconception of, of the difference between people thinking about AFL footballers as footballers as opposed to people. And they are trying to genuinely make their lives better. And in some cases, it genuinely affects their families' lives. It affects their future overall. And I just, um, you know, I don't feel like, particularly for players who are taken very high in the draft, that there, there is a there is a to and fro and there is a tension between what the club provides for them and what the players themselves are destined to contribute. And... I don't think that we're in the day and age where you can just accept the fact that your players you draft are just going to stay because you drafted them anymore because the players are, uh, have had their eyes wide open. And look, in some cases, though, or in some ways, I should say, I think my deal was probably one of the first where really we entered into the trade period knowing we had leverage. And, you know, I was overseas at the time, but Liam um, Pickering, my manager, has, you know, was masterful in leveraging and balancing the tension between upsetting the Giants so much that out of spite they'd kept me, but also putting them under as much immense pressure as possible to put them in a position where they had to accept the trade offer that was on the table from the Bulldogs. And I think, you know, playing that, that walking that fine line is a really important part because the worst possible situation that Jason can find himself in is, you know, having upset basically North Melbourne and all their supporters and having to play a following 12 months at that footy club and not being able to perform to the best of his ability based on having put himself in a situation where there's a significant amount of roadblocks that weren't even there this year on top of the challenges that he's already faced. Take us back to your trade experience, Tom. Let's move the conversation forward because you detail it really well in your memoir, Nowhere to Hide. You were on an Indonesian island at the time that this deal went down. There wasn't a great deal of Wi-Fi on that island. You had conversations, obviously, with Liam Pickering throughout the year and throughout that trade period. But it's hardly like you were in Melbourne or in Australia at the time when the trade was all being negotiated. What was that period like? Yeah, I think everyone thinks that like I knew I was going to leave at the end of my first season. And you know, I'd, I'd booked a, a new lease in Concord with a few of the boys and um, you know, had to pay that for a significant period before someone could essentially take it off 
uh, in the following season. But, you know, I yeah, thankfully signed power of attorney over to, to Liam before I left. I went over to Indonesia and I was really, really just trying to reset. I mean, the first season was is and always will be a really challenging experience to draft these, particularly for um, particularly high, anyone. High picks, low picks, it doesn't really matter. Transitioning into the game is challenging. So I went over there on a surf trip. I went there to basically, you know, unplug, disconnect, and that's exactly what I had available to me. No cell reception, uh, some very dodgy Wi-Fi, which we were getting absolutely eye-gouged for price. I think it was costing us 50 bucks a day or something, and it barely worked if two people were on it. And, uh, and I remember I'd... Um, I hadn't heard anything about what was going on in Melbourne other than I was just basically following, you know, the equivalent of U2 at the time, which was trade radio or trade news. And we'd seen that Ryan Griffin had asked for a trade. And I remember we had a sort of few spattering LI messages back and forth between Liam and my dad. And we sort of got to the stage where, you know, dad said to me essentially, look, everything that's good that's happened in my life, particularly in business, has happened when I've been willing to take a risk. And we decided that the risk was worth the reward, obviously, with the financial opportunity that was on the table. And from there, essentially, um, you know, the trade you know, period, long as it is, uh, just basically went back and forth. It was never going to happen. It was going to happen. I actually ran into Dave Matthews the other day, and we had a good laugh about how the never a chance of trade period, uh, trading me became a, okay, we're going to trade him. Um, but essentially just got to the stage where it was a stalemate on the last night. Um, and the Liam had spent three or four days basically, you know, doing exactly what I mentioned earlier in terms of leveraging public opinion against the Giants and trying to put them in a difficult position. And I get a text at probably 6 p.m. or something, trade uh, the second last day of trade period. I think it finished at 2 p.m. the next day or something like that. And um, Pickers basically said, look, they've gone home. We're not getting anywhere. Not sure if this is going to happen. So I wake up the next morning or after probably not sleeping very well at all and you know, the deal of a lifetime gets sealed by two words, which basically just said it's done. Um, you know, of course, I said, what's done? But, um, yeah, that was basically the, the uh, extent of my trade period, a very stressful few days. But at least I was in the, one of the most peaceful parts of the world. When you read those two words, it's done, what was the immediate feeling? Oh, overwhelming. Well, confusion first. I wanted to confirm it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. But um, overwhelming relief because I'd had no communication with the Giants. Um, one, basically because, you know, I was stuck in Indonesia and they couldn't get on to me. But two, quite simply because, you know, engaging with your current club when you're in a difficult position like that isn't usually conducive to success. Um, but the previous communication I had with Leon was, um, geez, Tom, it's been a, a crazy few days. Can't wait for you to come back for a really, really big AFL preseason. <laughs> and I started to basically think I was going to stay in Indonesia for the next two years, to be honest <laughs> with you. But um, yeah, the relief that I sort of hit me, and and then you know, it probably took me uh, it probably took me twelve months to really realise how big of a thing it happened. Um, you know, it was such a sort of watershed moment in terms of, you know, high draft picks leveraging their way out of contracts 12 months before they were done and sort of entered a new phase of AFL free agency, which wasn't really free agency. And then we're sort of seeing the fruits of that, I suppose, today. We're speaking to Tom Boyd. Tom, talk us through the first 12 months at the Bulldogs, because as you say, there was all attention on you with this big deal, having come from the Giants as the number one pick. It must have been really tough and perhaps not as tough as people on the outside thought. Yeah, I suppose my, uh, my first, um, not warning sign, but probably eye-opening experience, I remember we did a uh, 
sort of kiss the baby moment down at uh, Williamstown North Primary School. You know, you've got a clinic, the son was out. I think Nathan Roebuck came with me because uh, I played with him at Big Metro and he was a familiar face. And the wonderful Dennis Spicer, the media manager at the club, had sort of organised it. Anyway, we, we finished the clinic and I went to a press conference with the, the media that were in attendance today. And I can't remember if it was the second or third question, but essentially what was put to me was, you know, what do you think this means for overall player trading and, and the free agency market or something like that? And I was like, well, I'm 19, so I don't know if I know a lot about what's going on. But um, I think that really marked probably the, 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 the significant distinction between me being, you know, a junior at 18 who, you know, was super high potential, number one pick, then going through my first season and it was started to sort of the conversation shifted to, oh, where is he at? You know, I know big guys take a bit longer, but, you know, it's sort of, we're not seeing enough from him. He only played nine games, kicked, whatever, eight goals. Where's he at? What's going on? And then as soon as I moved back to to Melbourne, I think the conversation really became, hey, he's getting paid a whole heap of money. Why isn't he being one of the best players in the competition? And I think that's probably part of the story of, you know, my journey being that I think based on circumstance that people held a different level of standard towards me. And that's, you know, that's absolutely fine based on the fact that I was a number one pick and I was getting paid a lot of money, but it was really quite difficult because I felt um, this overwhelming sense of impatience for me to really get to being one of the premier players in the competition far quicker than perhaps some of my other teammates or or draft cohort had um, put to them. Tom, we could spend much of the morning discussing your fascinating footy journey and what you're doing now. I just want to get an insight into your relationship with the game because your story is very well known. Your move is very well known, but you're also a really big part of the Western Bulldogs history in terms of the role you played in that grand final back in 2016. Pretty stiff not to get the Norm Smith medal, given your role on that day that ended a 62-year premiership drought. How is your relationship with footy now? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to define football in, in a couple of buckets. I mean, for, for starters, the AFL is, um, you know, it's not, it's not footy. The AFL is a league. It's obviously the highest league in the land. It is also a, you know, behemoth of a PR machine. It generates, you know, basically bums on seats and eyes on screens. And I think my experience in that environment was quite challenging. But then when I go back to the sort of community level, um, and I see there's power that football and, you know, say footy and netball clubs in country Victoria through the work that I do with WorkSafe have in not only bringing people together, but supporting young people and people alike. I think it's just a fantastic thing to see. And I've never loved community footy more than I, I love it right now. But I will say, you know, to touch on the premiership and you're both being very kind around the Norm Smith. I thought Jason was quite uh, <laughs> dominant that day. But the actual relationship that I have with the fans of the football club at the, at the Bulldogs is something that I'm particularly, grati- uh, you know, have a particular level of gratitude for, given the fact that, you know, the Bulldogs have come from a, a suburb that has been historically quite poor. It's a, it's a team that has gone, you know, basically into bankruptcy multiple times. It's been merger talks, has been, you know, many, many stories written about the challenges of the Western Bulldogs. And I think for me to be able to talk to some of the older fans who, you know, as a 21-year-old to win a premiership, some of these fans have supported the club for, you know, four times as long as I've been alive. And the conversations I'm lucky enough to have with them is really, you know, one filled with gratitude and then basically thanking me and and my teammates for the contributions we made on that day because they never thought they were ever going to see a a flag. And and many of them have even mentioned that they they can now die happy, which I think is, you know, if if anyone can articulate the magic of sport, I think that's the, the message that I would... I would put to them. Tom, just to finish up, you're 27 now. You and Anna had Amani in April. Life sounds like it's changed quite a bit for you. 
Yeah, well, Josh, when I spoke to you last time, she was still sleeping. So um, she, she's decided to become nocturnal in the last five weeks, which has made it a, a different proposition altogether. But You should be well-practiced, though, with think, sleep deprivation. You know, things, <laughs> it's slightly different when someone's screaming at you in the middle of the night. Um, I think, look, one of the things that, you know, I've, I've tried to say to people is, you know, when I left the game, I, I was certain that I wanted to move on. Um, I was certain of the sort of North Star that I wanted to work in the mental health space and I wanted to make a positive impact. And I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. And obviously COVID threw a bit of a spanner in the works and it ended up changing my perspective even more. But doing the work that I do now, I'm really grateful that I get to get up every day and actually make an impact in the space that I wanted to. And I think finally on that point is as amazing as the grand final was, and it's certainly not something I'm going to be able to experience again from a public sort of experience sense. When I walked out of the game at 23, I just wanted to make sure that the, you know, the highlight of my life wasn't what happened as a 21-year-old and that I was able to accomplish things after the game that actually meant something to, to, to people and meant something to me and my family. So that's what I'm endeavouring to do. Whether I've accomplished it yet, not sure, but certainly looking to do that in the future. Tom, it's great to hear that everything is flying for you at the moment. Nowhere to hide. Where can everyone find your first book? You're a published author. Congratulations. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, it was quite the journey writing a book about yourself, I'll tell you that much, especially when it's mostly about really challenging times. But um, it's in all good bookstores, I'm told. I'm sure you can buy it on Booktopia or any of the, uh, the major online retailers as well. But look, I think it's something that I really want it to be useful for people. And, you know, I think one of the things that I, I mentioned to a couple of the, the guys that I've been speaking to this morning is that it's something that I think I wish I'd read or something like that that I wish I'd read when I was 16, 17, 18, going through the formative years of my life because many of the questions we all have about ourselves and where we're going and the doubts and uncertainties that we face, you know, everyone faces them, including footballers who seem like they've got it all put together, you know, who are able to... Yeah, paid lots of money and, and win a premiership at, at a young age. We still have many questions about who we are and, and what we actually want to accomplish in our lives. And hopefully it's helpful for people in understanding not only my journey, but hopefully in understanding theirs. It sounds like an invaluable resource. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us on The Trade Feed. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Tom Boyd there, of course, the 2016 Premiership Bulldog, former number one draft pick and now published author with Nowhere to Hide, also a mental health advocate. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.